right, I'm going to pray and uh, get started. Father, thank you again that you are a good, good Father, that you lead us, you lead our, our church as a family, that you know where you're leading us, that you always care for us, and that you have a plan for us to become everything you dreamt we'd be. We love you, God. Amen. So I want to talk about church community today. Um, but to get there, I want, to, I want to hit two things that I have in my notes that are uh, precursors to being a healthy community. Brent sung about it in worship. Kurt talked about it in uh, his thing. To becoming a healthy community, there has to be a constantly developing knowledge of the Father God. We cannot become a healthy church, a healthy community, a healthy family without a consistent development of our knowledge of the Father. With that, each of us must have an experiential knowledge of God. It's not sufficient to know about him. We have to truly know him. We have to see his working in our life and know his presence and voice. One of the reasons we do things like activation exercises and we ask you to examine your own life as a testimony with God is because when you see and hear God's activity in your life, you become aware that he's involved with you. You're no longer talking about someone that you don't know. You can now talk to someone that you know is walking with you and participating in life with you. These activation exercises, when we get together and, and someone prays for you and they start to pray things about you they should not know, things that move and stir your heart, that's not a person, it's God. And he's wanting you to know that I'm involved with you, I'm here with you, and I'm for you. It takes a knowledge about God and shifts it to a knowledge of God that's experiential. And it's essential that we pursue that and grow in that. I'm not going to dwell on that today, but... That's absolutely essential. We also have to know him as he truly is, as the scriptures reveal. Okay? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not changing with the culture. He's not changing with politics. And he's not changing with the laws of our land. He is. So the God that we become acquainted with and grow in the knowledge of is the God revealed in scripture. That's where we need to turn to get to know him. The second uh, thing that goes along with that is we have to get to know who we are because of who our Father is and because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. When you believed in Jesus, you were crucified with Christ. You were buried with him in the tomb and you were resurrected with him from the grave. I could... I think I mentioned it a couple weeks ago about Romans 6. I could talk about this for hours, but I can't. I'm not allowed today. Um, but let me just say this. All that you once were in your sin, your rebellion, your corruption, your shame, the horror of the sins and the crimes against God you committed were utterly crucified and put to death with Christ. Dead. 
It is no more. You are no more. It simply doesn't exist. God says, I remember your sin no more. If it doesn't exist for God, it doesn't exist. So when you receive Jesus in faith, everything that you used to be is over. And you can talk about it like it was someone else, because it was. You don't have to drag what you used to be around with you anymore. You were raised with Christ as a new creation. The Bible does not say that you're a cleaned up version of the old. Scripture says you are a new creation in Christ. If you were just the old shined up, it would say that. That's not what it says. You are a new creation in Christ. It's important that I tell you, though, here, that if you don't let go of the old, you will continue to drag it around, around with you, and you will never fully become new. You get to let go of all that you used to be. And when you do, you get to become all God intends you to be. But if you drag that old thing around in your shame and you don't want to let it go, that's your choice. But you're hindering your life going forward. You're hindering what you could become in Christ. So just let it die. Let it go. Acknowledging your sin and your rebellion does two things. It allows you to confess that you are not the person that committed those evils anymore, and it increases your awareness of the incredible love and mercy of your Father. Yeah, I, run, I run into people that I knew 15 years ago, and they'll sometimes mention things that I did or said, and rather than feel ashamed about that anymore, I feel privileged that I can say that that's not me anymore. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. That's the reality of what we have in Christ. When you also acknowledge all that he crucified, your consciousness of God's love and mercy toward you grows. And as your consciousness of his mercy and love grow, simultaneously grows your courage. And this is important later on. You know, one thing that stands out to me about when you look at the life of Peter, Peter was a brave man when he walked with Jesus in the Gospels, wasn't he? This guy was, he had guts. You know, we admire him. He walked on water. He took on this entire guard that came to arrest Jesus. Peter had courage, and yet he abandons Jesus at the cross. And Jesus comes back from the grave, and he sits, and he talks with Peter, and he, he tells him, I love you, Peter. He restores him. He shows Peter all that he's supposed to be. And when you see Peter in the book of Acts, the boldness and the courage with which he lives makes the bravery of the Gospels look a lot like that of a prepubescent boy. He becomes a man of God walking in true godly courage because he knows 
that he couldn't do it the way he once was, and he knows that's not the man he is today, and he walks in something new. So we have to continue growing in these two things, the knowledge of God our Father and the knowledge of who we are in Christ because he is our Father. Those are continuous. We we don't ever stop that forever. But what I really want to talk about today is church community. I think it's absolutely essential that while we grow in these two things, and I think we're really good at this, and I think most churches are really good at these, the, the first two, knowledge of God, knowledge of who we are. I think the third thing is key for the church to become a force again, not just a presence. See, the church was the thing about which Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't say... Peter, that guy, would be a guy that would overcome the gates of hell. Or Billy Graham, he said the church, the people, would be the force against which the gates of hell could not stand. The church would break the gates of hell and loot and plunder its spoils. Millions of lost souls. But often, I think when we collectively look around, we're aware that the church is a a presence, but it's not necessarily a force. And so I think as a church that it's really important that we go beyond what we do here and we take on a life that is focused and intentional community living. The church is intended to be a focused and intentional community. And so I'm going to define community for us. What I want to talk about from here on is not about what we do in church services. I think we do church services really well. I also think we're limited by what we can accomplish in our church services because we're together for an hour and a half a week. If you're really committed, you come to one weeknight service, and if you're radical, you go to two. So you got four and a half hours a week to really accomplish changing the world. To overcome the gates of hell, we're going to get done in four and a half hours. Right? It's not going to happen. So what I'm going to talk about from here on, you have to understand, is going to require of you more than just attending church services if you want to be a part of a focused and intentional community like the church was intended to be. Understand that to experience any of what I'm going to talk about, you have to get involved. You must get involved with other Christians inside this room, outside of church service times. church is wonderful and the services are great but to really be effective it has to carry out beyond how we get together in this building it's got to flow into everyday life and that's what we're going to spend the rest of the this morning talking about so from here on I'm not talking about church services I'm talking about how we share life together how we live in community together 
So number one, the first requirement to live in a focused and intentional community, for the church to be an intentional and focused community. We must commit our life and time to a group of people for the sake of sharing in fellowship, the breaking of bread into prayer. That's what the book of Acts says the church did. Here's what it means. It means that my life no longer is separated, belonging to me. It's now opened up and it belongs to everyone else out here. It means that you have to spend time with other people that are like-minded with you for the sake of accomplishing something beyond what you can accomplish in a church service. I love church services. We come in here, we get touched by God, we're inspired. And for years, I thought that the way we would change the world would come through a church service. And it doesn't. They're great, they're for building up, but there's so much more to be had when you begin to be a community outside these walls. Number one, you will have to let go of all the time you keep for yourself and begin to give it to the people sitting around you. Sharing meals together, sharing family together, raising kids together. That's what the church was meant to be. Not a group of people that, hey, good to see you again on Wednesday. Happy Sunday morning. Let's spend an hour together. We're best friends, and I'll see you again Wednesday night for prayer. There is so much more that God intended for us as a family. Living together. Doing life together. It probably means that there's going to be real labor involved. When your neighbor needs help putting his roof on. Or cutting his wood. I mean, I know. There's a letting go of self in the stepping into community where true life is found. Number two, the church is primarily for the sake of building each other up. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the primary mission of the church is that our sharing and community together would be for the sake of building one another up. It's discipleship. But it's discipleship that's not happening in a church service. It's discipleship that happens while you're swinging a hammer together. It's discipleship that happens while you're changing diapers together, and you're sharing a meal together, and you're praying together. Discipleship has gotten too clean we do discipleship now, and it only happens in a, in a confined context where it's safe and there's no distractions. That's not real discipleship. Real discipleship's messy. It's when somebody busts into your house at 1030 at night because they're falling apart and your heart, house is chaos and there's dishes everywhere, kids are puking, and you're telling them about what they need to know and you're praying for them in that moment. That's real discipleship. It develops maturity. It lets people who maybe have never seen real life see real life walked out before God every hour of every day. We're so clean in here. 
We get these concepts of what our life should look like when we go home, and no one can attain to it because it's not real. You guys don't have to have clean houses all the time. Seriously. We're all like, really? You have a child and you're like, man, I could probably handle this. Then you have two and you're like, oh, dang, call my mom. You have three and four and five and you're just like, I'm a failure. But whoever said your house has to be clean? Whoever said it? It's not in the Beatitudes. Real life is messy. That's how you get to know what real godliness lives like, is when you see it for what it really is. The body is for the sake of helping to make whole. When we first come to know Jesus, we probably have a lot that we have to let die, huh? Some of us, far more than others. But we need family, we need brothers and sisters and moms and dads to help us realize that all that you used to be is gone and you're something new today. And we can help one another unearth and discover what it is God created in us. We require one another to become what God intended us to be. Preparing one another for the work of ministry. The scripture says, let us continue, or let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What if neglecting to meet together is more than just what happens on Sunday? What if neglecting to meet together means that you don't get together outside of church, and the only time you do get together is when it's clean and safe and you look like your whole world is put together on Sunday morning. We are to get together frequently, regularly, and encourage one another on toward loving good works. I have to say this, because I can't help myself. There are few things as discouraging as Christians attempting to silence fellow believers when they step out in faith. If the primary calling of the church is to build up into maturity, and Paul in 2 Corinthians says, I'm not using my authority for tearing down, but for building up. I'll tell you that I think it grieves God greatly when Christians finally get the courage to step out and say something about Jesus, pray for someone, take a stand for something, and they're accosted by other Christians attempting to silence them. It's so heartbreaking. I think it grieves the heart of God so immensely. You know who tried to silence Jesus and John the Baptist? Pharisees. You know who he rebuked the most harshly? Pharisees. Guys, when a Christian, a fellow believer, steps out and says something, and maybe it disturbs the culture. 
and it sends ripples through the culture that you know are going to affect you. Think of it like this. An alarm sounds for the sake of waking those who are sleeping. When an alarm sounds and it's out of tune, you don't silence the alarm because it's still useful in waking people up. You may work to tune it, but you allow it to keep sounding until all who are sleeping awaken. Likewise, when we have fellow Christians who are out there and they're sounding the alarm, if their methods aren't what you think they maybe should be, don't silence the alarm. Encourage them. Encourage their boldness. Encourage them for being one of a handful who are willing to stand up and say something. And if there's a better method, well, help tune it. But don't silence it. It's not loving to silence an alarm when it's waking sleeping people and telling them to flee a a burning building. It's loving to be the alarm. We're to build one another up. In times like we live, often we're in need of one another for encouragement. Often we're trying to become more courageous and bold and, and be and say everything that God thinks we should be and everything that we want to say. The last thing we need are Christians who are trying to silence us because they're concerned about their reputation being attached to ours. Encourage one another. In private, you can work on the tune. Next, understand the times in which we live and plan accordingly. Throughout the Gospels and throughout the Bible, we see Jesus telling people to be aware of what's happening around you. He rebukes and chastises the disciples and the culture for they know the weather, but they don't know the times in which they live. Why? Because you have to change the way you do things according to the times, not according to the culture, according to the times. When John the Baptist was on the scene, everyone was calling out, crying, and awaiting for the Messiah. Come, send the Messiah. When Jesus shows up, he was here. You can stop asking for the Messiah when he's standing in front of you. As a church, we have to be aware of what's happening around us. What is God doing? Is his return drawing near? No one knows the day or the hour. That's true. But we can know the season. And we should also know each season in which we live. There are things that require a change of the way we do life. We have to sort out and evaluate as a church what's happening around us so that we can be ready as a light in the darkness in every season. Third, be focused intentional when you get together socially with other Christians. This is a big one. 
nationally in the, in the Christian community, in the Christian church, there's a trend that says community, community, community. You know, and, and we're getting it, that we need to share life together beyond the four walls of the church. This isn't new, right? Where This isn't like, oh, wow, this is really revelatory. It's not. Everybody's saying this, okay? However, much of Christian community is little more than a non-sinning social club. I'm not, I don't say that to be offensive. But I say it to tell you that there's more intended for Christians when we get together outside the church. I believe that the church has largely lost its effectiveness in the culture because most of our Christian community is unfocused and it lacks intentionality. It's just social. Now, I'll be the first to admit that it is absolute, absolutely imperative that we have friends with whom we can gather and relax, refresh, and rejuvenate. It's absolutely needed. That's why there's a Sabbath in the Bible, right? And we have to have safe people with whom we can gather and become refreshed and just be ourselves and kick back. That's great. And we have that. But that's not to be primarily or exclusively what our time together as Christians lives like and looks like. I think our priority in community needs to be more focused and more intentional. I think our social gatherings should be filled with prayer for one another and for the times in which we live and the issues which we face. Have you guys ever been at a dinner where suddenly the hosts just are like, hey, we're going to pray for everybody that's here? I have. My first reaction was like, it's kind of awkward. And then I was like, why is this awkward? My normal needs to change. Why is it unusual for us to get together as Christians and say, hey, let's spend a couple hours praying for one another? What's on your heart? What are you dealing with when you go out into the community that you need to be prayed for? How can I build you up? When the, when the apostles and the church got together in the book of Acts, it says they gathered together for fellowship. Awesome. Breaking of bread. We really love that. And for prayer. Well, it was getting late. Really? What's the first thing that goes out the window? The food? <laughs> We're good at the first two. There's more for us with the third. Why don't our, our, our get-togethers socially have primarily an element of prayer? I think they're intended to. The sharing of testimony Sharing with one another what you've been dealing with and going through and accomplishing 
for the sake of the kingdom. You know, I was thinking this morning, I think David's greatest feat, what's the story we tell about David the most that all the kids know from the time they're old enough to walk and talk? Goliath, David's greatest feat? I don't think it was. I don't think David's greatest feat was defeating Goliath. I think David's greatest feat was convincing a bunch of cowards who wouldn't go fight Goliath that they could all be giant slayers too. David, he didn't just beat Goliath. He turned cowards into giant slayers. You read through the mighty men, it's filled with people who went and killed Goliath's siblings and his cousins and his buddies. And these were guys who wouldn't go face Goliath until David showed them how. Our, our dinner parties should be filled with the testimonies of the workings of God. Fourth, the church must strategically affect change in the culture. I use strategically as a, a very, very intentionally. Because I think if I threw up a question right now and said, you know, stand up if you want to change the world. Everybody in here, their hands are going up, they're standing on their chairs, we're jumping and we're screaming. You do an altar call for people who want to change the world, everybody's up getting prayed for. That's great. But what happens when you leave and it's Tuesday and it's starting to get hard? And the next thing I'd ask for everybody who's at an altar call is, okay, how are you going to do that? We have a desire to change the world, but do we know how? There's a, there's a parable in the Bible that's one, it's very confusing. It's parable of the shrewd manager. You know why it's confusing? It's because Jesus is commending a man who's breaking the law and cheating. He's not commending him for cheating or for breaking the law. He's commending him for knowing how the system works and how to exploit it to accomplish a greater purpose. This one's for us, guys. We have to come to understand how the world works, how the systems work, because it's through those workings that we are going to affect change and bring about something different. We can't stay in here and talk about changing the world and go out there and not plug into the means and the methods by which we'll bring the change. And that's what Jesus is telling the church. Guys, figure out how it works so you know how to be influential. Personal evangelism is a part of it. It's not all of it. There's strategy that's required for the church to figure out how to change the culture. And I think it's as we've lost our ability to be strategic that we've lost our influence in the culture. I think we have more vibrant Christians in our country today than we have for 100 years. I really believe that. The church is strong and it's vibrant and they love God. They want to change the world, but I think we don't know how. 
I think we want to go out. We want to make a difference. And I think we leave and we go, the only thing I know how to do is tell someone about Jesus. Which is great, but it's not the end. I think we, want to see, we, want, we have people in here, they want to see abortion ended. They don't know what to do other than tell people about Jesus. Seriously, we've got to get strategic. We have to become a strategic movement. That's how we become a force, and it's how we maintain traction, and it's how we keep going when things get hard. I know the people in this room desire to change the world. But it doesn't happen getting excited on a Sunday or in a prayer meeting or even with a focused and intentional dinner party that has prayer in it. We can't just plow out into the street hoping the whole world changes the next day. Five things we need to do to become strategic. We need to figure out how the system works. How is this world working around us so that we can use the systems to accomplish God's means for the culture. Two, we need a plan, and we need to plan. When is the last time you sat over dinner and talked about how you were going to build a plan to go out and change the culture? It just doesn't happen, does it? This is where the church is going. This is what we're going to become. We're going to plan we're going to set goals so that we can evaluate whether or not our strategy is working. We need to cooperate. Not everybody is going to be the guy on the street corner. Not everybody is going to be William Wilberforce in Parliament. Not everybody is going to be writing letters to the editor because the fact is some people are gooder writers than others. We need to cooperate because each of us has a different role. And when we're all cooperating and we're pulling on the same end of the rope together, we start to accomplish things because we hold one another up. We encourage one another on toward love and good works. We need to cooperate. Four, we need to execute. We need to execute. We can't talk about all the things that would be great to do and do nothing. We can't talk about all the things that we wish the church were and should be doing and leave and do nothing. I don't think we've ever lived in a time where there were fewer great church critics. If you guys ever go on the internet, there's blogs written 47,000 times a day about what's wrong with the church and what she should do differently. And you know what happens after people write those? They do nothing but criticize the church again the next day. We need to have a plan, and then we need to execute. If we know what the church should be, let's be it and do it. Right? We need a plan, and then we need to execute. Houses don't get built from architectural drawings. They get built when carpenters go out and swing hammers and put it up. Architectural drawings are great, and you need them and you have to have them if you want a sound building, but they're nothing without a contractor to go out and put the building up. We need to execute. 
We need to have a plan, and we need to execute it. And then we need to persevere. That's the last thing. This isn't going to happen overnight. You want to change the culture? Awesome. You want to change the world? Fantastic. Sign up for 75 years. That's how long it's going to take. I hope it happens in three and we get to spend the rest of our lives living in the glories of the kingdom. But it's probably our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren that are going to get to experience the fruit of it, not us. When William Wilberforce decided to join a community like this, like we're talking about, and they started to develop a plan, and they started to figure out how the system worked and what they needed to do, and they started to execute this plan. Does anyone know how many years it took from the time they first formed a group until the time slavery was abolished in England? 48 years. 48 years they persevered. Does anyone question today whether or not it was worth it? Wilberforce persevered for for 48 years and he died three days after uh, slavery was abolished in England. That's a life's work. Guys, that's what the church is supposed to sign on for. We're going to go after this thing until it happens or until I go to be with Jesus. We're not going to do it through some fanciful program. We're going to do it by living together, sharing life together, joining families together. We're going to do it with a plan, with a strategy. We're going to do it by encouraging one another on and building one another up. We're going to do it as a group. We're going to cooperate. We're going to execute every one of our plans and evaluate whether or not they're working and change them accordingly. And we're going to persevere until this thing happens or Jesus comes back or I go to be with him. That's church community. I'm going to pray. We're going to have the worship team come back up. Today, just pray and ask God to mark your heart with a commitment, with a grace to live in church community like this. And then after today, it's on you to find out where you need to tie in in this group to make sure you don't miss this. Because all that that I just talked about at the end, it happens outside of our regular church meetings. Because it has to. There are other things that we have to discuss when we get together on Sundays and Wednesdays and Thursdays. But in the messiness of sharing life is where the culture can be changed. Please, please don't be a part of this church without getting all the way tied in. There's so much that happens here that you don't see or hear about if you're only here on Sundays. There's so many amazing people standing around you. There's so much wealth in the spirit here that you miss if you only listen to the few guys that talk on Sundays. Get involved. Force yourself into someone else's family. Get to know what's going on here. I'm going to pray God's blessing over us. Apparently, many of us can't leave unless we get this blessing. 
Father, may your blessing rest on these, your people. Father, may your blessing rest on your people. May we become everything as a church that you hoped we would be. May we share life together in ways that we didn't know families could. May we see what the church was intended to be as we go out into our fields of ministry, God. May our deeds be reflective of you. May our words lead many to know you. And may power follow us wherever we go. We love you, Father. Amen. Amen. The rest will be open-ended.